Our scripture reading this morning is again from Matthew 5, the first 12 verses, the passages, passage that we've been looking at for quite some time now. Matthew 5, the first 12 verses. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so far the reading. Now we've spent quite a bit of time over the past few months listening to what what Jesus teaches us about kingdom living. And today we're going to go back to take again a, a look at sort of an overview of how these attitudes of kingdom living tie together. And I hope that you recognise some of the things that we'll be saying this morning because that would mean that somewhere along the line you've also listened to previous sermons. But we'll, we'll see about that. As we look back then at these at these blessed sayings, we'll see that these sayings of Jesus are essential to how we are to live. They're not just good words, they are words of life. These sayings are about how Jesus expects us to live, how he expects all those who follow him to think and to act. As we heard last week, these sayings form a a kingdom sandwich. they framed in verses 3 and 10 by the very important statement, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That tells us that each one of these blessings has to do with the kingdom of heaven. We also need to keep in mind that, that when Jesus calls us to live with these particular mindsets or these particular attitudes, it's not so that we can be blessed. It's because we are already so amazingly blessed. And we also need to remember that as followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, our lives are to be lived in such a way that other people are drawn to Jesus. That's what our lives are supposed to look like, lives that draw other people to Jesus. Before we go on to how to look at how these, these Beatitudes sort of stick together, how the sandwich is made up, at how the Beatitudes build on top of each other, there's one thing that we need to pay attention to, and that is what this blessing or being blessed means. We've touched on it a number of times over the past few months, but let me once again make it clear that when Jesus uses the word blessed, it doesn't have anything to do with that bless you that people almost automatically say when you sneeze. Perhaps in the past week you've seen on the news how people in Spain take their pets to the local churches on the 17th of January each year 
to be blessed, to be sprinkled with the so-called holy water. That's not the type of blessing that Jesus is talking about either. And despite some suggesting that it just means being happy, that's just not it. Beloved in Christ, you sure can be happy when you're blessed, but being blessed is about so much more than just happy feelings. Being blessed means having favour bestowed upon you. And in this case, it has to do with favour being bestowed upon you by God, by the creator of the universe. Being blessed by God means he's turned his face towards you and he's being gracious to you. That's the type of blessing that Jesus refers to, being approved by God. And it's against that background then that we need to look at what these Beatitudes tell us about living our lives. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, these blessednesses are not things from which you can pick and choose. It isn't like going to Coles or Aldi and, and standing in front of the tray of mangoes and go, this one's a bit too hard, I'll leave it, or I don't like the smell of that one, I'm not going to take that. It's not like a recipe that you can take one part meekness, a pinch of humility and two dashes of righteousness. It's not like items on a menu that you can go and select something and leave the others. These beautiful attitudes are not only inseparable, each one also builds upon the one that goes before it. In that, that sense, it's like climbing up a staircase. If you want to be a bit poetic about it, you can say that these beatitudes are like a stairway to heaven. Mind you, not a stairway that leads to your salvation, but a stairway that you climb exactly because you have been saved. If you know anything about architecture, you'll know that to be structurally sound, it is essential for something like a staircase to have a solid foundation. And in that sense, it's the same for the Beatitudes. When in verse 3, Jesus teaches that the poor are blessed, the poor in spirit are blessed, we need to get to grips with what that means for it is the foundation on which the other Beatitudes are based. Why does God want us to be poor in spirit? What's so important about it that it can be viewed as the foundation of all the Beatitudes? Now let me make it clear that being poor in spirit doesn't mean that you are worthless, that you are of no value, either to yourself or to God. After all, Hasn't Christ died for you, for me? Hasn't he died on the cross so that we can be saved? That in itself, without a shadow of a doubt, shows that we are of incredible value to him. Being poor in spirit means that we've seen the depth of, the, of our need for Christ. It means that we've got the right attitude by recognizing our dependence on God. It means that we recognize that in ourselves we have absolutely nothing of value, nothing of worth to offer to the Lord. Theologically speaking, we can say we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. It means that we see and that we know also that without the power of Christ working in us, we cannot love others, we cannot forgive others. It means recognizing the extent of our sin. And it means recognizing how much pain, how much grief that sin causes our holy God. 
and it means then coming before him in humility, exclaiming like the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It also means that we come before God simply clinging to the cross and that with humility, with deep humility, we can cry out, O Lord, we come before you with nothing in our hands and helpless. We ask for your grace. Congregation, that, that is spiritual poverty. That's the foundation of what is to follow. And Jesus secondly teaches that those who mourn are blessed. Please note that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who always moan and groan about how difficult life is. And although it is certainly a blessing to know that the Lord is near us and and draws close to us and draws us near to him when we are grieving or mourning, when we're mourning over a loved one, a parent or a child or a spouse, this blessing is also not about that type of mourning. This blessing has to do with sorrow over sin, sorrow over sin, sorrow over unrighteousness. Both your own sin and also about the wickedness that goes on in this world. So where being poor in spirit has to do with confession, this grieving has to do with remorse. In other words, it's about having the right attitude towards sin. In that sense, we could say, blessed are those who are desperately sorry for their sin. You see, when we begin to see the depth of our sin, when we begin to understand our sin grieves our holy God, then surely it has, has to lead us to, to lament over our sin. That has, has to lead us to godly sorrow over our sin. And it also has to lead us to sorrow over the sin of others, the sin that goes on in the world, the sins that pervade our world. And brothers and sisters, this is good mourning. It is good grief. For if you are truly grieving over your sin, then you'll also have that, that blessed relief of being driven to God's arms, being driven to God's throne of mercy, his throne of divine comfort. It's good grief if we recognize these things. It's good if we grieve over our sin and over the sin of the world. If we are poor in spirit, it also it leads us to this grieving over sin. And these two beatitudes, these first two beatitudes, if we live them out, that is instrumental in helping us to see how, how desperately we need Christ. And under, understanding your deep need for Christ surely has to produce in your heart, in my heart, a different disposition. If we realize just how lost we are without Christ, can we really be arrogant and full of pride, full of self-centeredness? No, friends, no. If we recognize and understand our need for Christ, it has to change our very nature. It has to change our disposition to one of meekness and despite what the world may think this meekness isn't the same as weakness 
It doesn't mean letting everyone walk over you. What it means is, firstly, that you recognise that not everything is about you. It means having the right attitude towards God and also towards others. It means making use of what God has given you, the gifts that God has given you, without lording it over others, whatever that gift may be. It means being gentle. It means being humble rather than arrogant or self-centred. It means being willing to serve others rather than to expect being served. Because in so doing, in serving others, we will be like Christ to others. And isn't that what we are called to be and to do? Recognising the depth of our need for Christ prompts us to grieve over our sin, to live in meekness before our God. And together these beautiful attitudes produce or awaken in us a spiritual thirst to live according to God's will. It results in a, in a healthy spiritual appetite, an appetite to, to live righteously and also for righteousness to prevail in this world, for righteousness to prevail in the lives of others as well. And this is quite different from what we see in the world, isn't it? And to be honest, what we sometimes see in our own lives as well. Instead of a deep-seated hunger for righteousness to prevail in their lives, many have succeeded, sorry, succumbed to the worldly thirst for the five deadly P's, position, power, possession, prestige, and pleasure. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is talking about a much deeper thirst it's the thirst that grows from wanting to see God's will done in this world. It's the thirst that comes from wanting to see God's kingdom come. And this thirst for righteousness is characterized by, by a, a passion for doing what's right, for doing what's in God's will. In case you're wondering what this looks like in practice, let's just look at two examples. And the, these may be things that that all of us have come face to face with. Think for a moment of that person who has sinned against you. Whatever that sin may have been, theft, a lie, unfaithfulness, the natural response would be to hold on to that pain, wouldn't it? To wish that person would come a cropper. But that's not the right response for someone who has a passionate desire to live according to God's will. To live a righteous life. Thirsting for righteousness in this regard would be to truly, earnestly ask the Lord to work in your heart and to let you forgive as you have been forgiven. And then to apply that, to apply that by actually forgiving that other person and pleading with God to also work in his or her heart and to draw him or her back to him. That's what thirsting for righteousness would look like in that case. But what about the person whom you have hurt? Have you thought about that? 
It isn't good enough to just want that other person to get on with it. To wish they'd just forget about it. If you really thirst for righteousness, if you really thirst for righteousness, you have to genuinely and sincerely ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness from God, but also forgiveness from the person you have hurt. That's what this thirsting for righteousness in our lives look like in those circumstances. You see, hungering and thirsting for righteousness is about a passionate, a passionate desire to live in line with God's will. And it isn't just about righteousness in our own lives. Such righteousness also seeks social justice. It seeks justice. It seeks social righteousness. It seeks integrity in all spheres of life. And beloved in Christ, this passion for living in accordance with God's word, God's will, and for according to how God's will should be done on earth, should be, should be as important to us as, as food and, and as drink. That's why Jesus talks about hungering and, and thirsting for it. Living in accordance with God's will and for God's will to be done should be that important to us. So to briefly recap so far, the, the first four Beatitudes speak about recognizing the depth of the, our need for Christ, grieving over sin, living in meekness before God, and thirsting for righteousness. Then Jesus turns a bit away and he, he, he speaks about what is called the attitudes of the Beatitudes of action. They have to do with how we act towards our fellow human beings. The first of these Beatitudes tells us that those who are merciful are blessed. Now this attitude of compassion and gentleness, especially to those who are helpless or those who are in need, it's based on the, on the previous attitudes. It's another step on the staircase. You see, if we recognise our own spiritual poverty, our own spiritual bankruptcy, how we are totally dependent on the mercy of God expressed in Jesus Christ, how can we then not be merciful? How can we not express to those who are just as, as wretched and sinful as we are, how can we not express mercy to them? We're not called to be merciful because we want to receive mercy. No, we must be merciful because we've already received mercy. And we continue to receive mercy upon mercy upon mercy, day upon day upon day. Being compassionate and merciful is dependent on this willingness to be gracious and forgiving. So how are you going with that? How are we going with that? How patient and compassionate are you with those who are less fortunate than you? the ones whom we find on the streets of Ipswich, the ones who come knocking at the door for food or for other help, how compassionate are we towards them? How merciful are we? Or do we just brush them off? Bringing it a bit closer to us as a, as a church community. How merciful are you and I to those who have fallen? 
Do we treat them with understanding? The same understanding we would want when we wander off the, the straight and narrow path? Or we are, are we condescending or judgmental? Brothers in Christ, sister in Christ, what do our actions say? Our actions towards others, what do they say about where we stand with Christ? Jesus goes on. He next speaks about the need for a pure heart. He's previously described the the scribes and the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs that are beautiful on the outside, but filthy on the inside. And that's the sort of message that he's working with as well when when he speaks about being pure in heart. Purity of the heart has to do with not having divided loyalties in terms of our relationship with God. It's about the purity of devotion to God. It's about the type of devotion with which David prayed to God to create in him a clean heart. This purity of heart covers all aspects of our lives. All aspects. It has to do with putting God first. In what we think and also about how we think about others. In how we respond when For instance, our friends use God's name in vain. In how we react when our family or our colleagues tell dirty jokes or or vulgar language. It's reflected in, in how sincere we are in our motives and above all in the sincerity of our desire to be purified, to do God's will. And this desire to be purified by God's holy fire places us in an ideal position, an ideal position to bring reconciliation into the lives of others. You can't be a peacemaker if you don't first let go of your own ego. To be a peacemaker, you have to be meek and gentle. You have to be willing to make the effort. Yes, even if it means you might be knocked back. It's no wonder that Jesus can say, blessed are the peacemakers. And the way in which Jesus calls his followers to live, that way will identify them as children of God. And friends, in a fallen world, in this fallen world, being identified with God isn't always a good thing. Living as these Beatitudes demand will lead to discomfort, to harassment, to persecution. In his letter to Timothy, Paul reminds us that that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And this persecution comes in all shapes. You might be harassed if you refuse to sign a gay colleague's card of congratulations on his marriage at work. I actually spoke to someone this week about that. It does happen. You may be arrested if you protest too near an abortion clinic against the killing of unborn children. Your friends may cut you from their Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever accounts if you speak up against things like sex outside of marriage or 
homosexuality. Some of your fellow believers may even stop inviting you to their homes because you take a stand against the language that they use outside of church. That has happened in our church. And be sure of this. Be very sure of this. The time will come when as a church we will face direct persecution if we proclaim Jesus as the only way to eternal life. It's happening all over the world. It will happen to us as well at some stage. And Jesus says, despite all of this, it is blessed. It's blessed if you're persecuted on his account. Are you willing? Are you willing to pay the cost of discipleship of Jesus? Is persecution, is harassment a blessing that you are willing to be blessed with? Are you willing to take that hit and then to rejoice and be glad? Brothers and sisters, the cost of discipleship is worth it. We can rejoice if we are persecuted on his account because of the reward that awaits us in heaven. We can rejoice because we will then be reflecting the character of Jesus. We can rejoice because we are standing up for the righteous one and we are growing more and more like him. Stand up and stand out for Jesus for no matter the cost, no matter the cost, Your future is secure. What a blessing that is. Let me conclude with the following. Now Jesus tells us what it looks like living lives of thanksgiving for the salvation that he has provided. Blessed indeed are those who are poor in spirit, who mourn over sin, who are meek, who have a healthy appetite for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers and are persecuted for his sake. Beloved in Jesus, are our lives pictures of these beautiful attitudes? Do we recognize the the depth of our need for Christ? Do we grieve over our sin? Are we willing to serve rather than be served? Do you yearn for righteousness to prevail in your life as well as in the lives of others? How does the compassion and the mercy that we've received from Christ, how does that flow out into the lives of others from you, from me? Are our lives characterized by making peace or by causing disunity? Are we willing to take a hit for Jesus from our friends, our families, our colleagues? We can do this. Yes, we can do this in the strength of Jesus. We can do this if only we will place our our hands in his steady and his safe hand. And trust in him, for he is faithful, and he will enable all those whom he has called. We can do this in Christ's strength. I say this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.
Gracious Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that in it you have provided all that we need for our lives. Now, Lord, we pray, write your words onto our hearts so that we may not only hear them, but live them. In the name of our Lord and Saviour, we pray. Amen.